From lifestyle, fitness, beauty, travel, relationships, and self-care, Steph's got you covered. Welcome to your safe space, where you can stop what you're doing, relax, and let someone else do the heavy lifting for once. This is the Luxury Dropout Podcast with your host, Stephanie Joplin. Jay Fields, I am so excited to have you on the Luxury Dropout Podcast. I'm Stephanie Joplin, everybody. This is Jay Fields. Jay, welcome to the show. Thanks, Stephanie. So what really drew me to you, Jay, is that I have a very dear friend named Anna, and she and her friend Christina have this amazing podcast called This Spiritual Fix. And I honestly, I credit Anna with a lot of my own nervous system regulation because uh-huh. she takes she takes a hundred like you know the zero to a hundred she takes the hundred Stephanie and kind of brings her down to like a oh 50. wow so she's my regulator that's so good to have <laughs> a friend like that it really is um but I wanted to chat with you because I feel like when I was in my 20s mm-hmm. I knew nothing about emotionally self-regulating. And I feel like many of my women friends are on that same path right now where they just get so anxious. They want to crawl out of their skin. They're crying. They're angry. They lash out. And Mm -hmm. I want to be able to effectively, you know, give them a direction of like trying to calm them down, but I can't do the work for them. They have to do it themselves. So that's where you come in. And I want to talk a little bit about you first. Um, You've helped hundreds of thousands of people, um, first of all, which is insane to me. Um, That is kind of wild. I know it is really wild. Um, So you basically help people manage their emotions more effectively. Um, So that's the synopsis of what you do in in one tiny sentence, but you do so much more. You do have courses um, that you do offer. I know your your most popular one is how to emotionally regulate at work. Is that correct? Yeah, how to manage your emotions at work. Yeah. Okay. okay. Apparently that's a thing that like everybody needs. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's definitely even even I feel like if you're self-employed, you still need that. Oh well. my gosh. Yeah. For sure. And then you also have another one um that's called Yours Truly and it's growing in intimacy and fulfillment. It's a 12-week long course. That must be very intense. Oh, it's awesome. It's but it's awesome. such a good uh collaborative a supportive group. I keep it really small and cool. handpick everyone who's in it and and that that's so really... you do group, but you also do one-to-one, right? I do, but I, I do only eight people a year now. I know. I've made it so that the people that I work with one-on-one, I'm really in there with them. And then the group is this all the same content and all the same work. It's just more accountability to one another and kind of collaboratively learning where you see some other woman go, Oh, first off, I'm not the only weirdo who does this, right? Like that's the great, the beauty of group work. And then like really getting inspired by seeing how other women are applying the learning and being like, wow, if she could do that, maybe I could do that. And so I've kind of switched my model to group learning. Okay. And how do you vet the eight people that you take on? Are, are there, do they, is there an application? Do you just speak with them and decide or? How yeah, there's, go? there's an application. Typically 
they come to me because someone else, they know someone who worked with me. And so sometimes I, you know, have a little bit of an insight, or maybe I've heard their name because it's their friend I've worked with. I'm like, oh, I know you, you've come up in stories. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's an application and then I, and I talk it out and, you know, I just had a, a conversation with a woman yesterday and I told her, I was like, at the end of the day, one of the things that I really am doing for the people I work with one-on-one -on -one is like, I'm being your mom for a year. Totally. So like, we have to like each other. There has to be, a, we have to click. We have to have the same sense of humor or whatever. You know, I, I have a potty mouth. I cry <laughs> when other people cry. Like we same. just kind of have to like jive and say, is this cool? Cause this is how I'm going to support you. And yeah. if there isn't mutual care there, I, it's not the right relationship that someone oh. else is a better fit completely understand that that's yeah. very cool and your book um you have a book it's called uh teaching people not poses is that correct that yeah because okay. my my uh original career i guess you would say was i was a yoga teacher i taught yoga for 22 years namaste <laughs> namaste and so that was my um back when i was full-time yoga teacher i wrote that book and it really became the precursor to all the work I'm doing now because mm. the book is about how to be a human being and an expert, like how to, how to show up at work. And the, at the time work for me, what I knew was a yoga studio, how to show up at work and like make an actual connection with a human being because you're being a human being, not being some kind of poser, you know? Right. Yeah. Just a robot. basically. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Or, you know, especially in the realm of yoga teachers, I think people want certain people in their life. They want their yoga teacher. They want their therapist. They want their doctor, whatever. They want them to be better than them. They want them to be like, you figured it out. Right. And you're the teacher and I'm the pupil. Exactly. Yeah. And so if you're, you know, I started teaching yoga when I was 19 mm -hmm. and that's a, that's a hard role to be in when you're in your twenties and people are looking into Ooh. you to like, so you figured it out. And I'd be like, Dude, ask my best friend. Like, I have figured nothing out. Um, so how to lead from that place. And this is a lot about what you talk about on your podcast, essentially, is like how to how to be the best version of you and be real. Because being a leader isn't being perfect, isn't oh. looking like you've got your shit together. It's like being able to um, translate experience in a way that can touch another person and create learning. You know, it's so funny, Jay, is like um, your your timing is very divine with you saying that because recently, just in the past two days, I've received probably 10 to 12 messages from women who have told me that I should become some sort of life coach or some type, of, you know, because I keep, I drop little gems here and there, and it just seems to be resonating really well with people these days. And I'm just speaking from my heart and from my own place of where I draw pain, where I draw happiness, where I draw everything. And right. it seems to be really resonating with people, but I'm sitting over here like, I, can you ask Anna? Like Anna knows. I don't. Right, exactly. I don't know. <laughs> like, no, I know. I felt the same way. I didn't seek out coaching. Mm -hmm. People started coming to me saying, well, could you, it was as a yoga teacher, other yoga teachers would come to me and say, Hey, could you help me with this? Can I pay you to sit and talk with me? Yeah. And I was like, are you sure? Me? <laughs> like, 
you like look behind you you're like me me exactly i was like if you want to okay Um, so i wanted to ask you can you explain for our audience the people who are not familiar with what it means to regulate our nervous system and polyvagal theory can you go into that and just you know in layman's terms explain Yeah. So the gist of it is like from the very basics is your autonomic nervous system is the part of your nervous system that is kind of keeping guard. It's constantly searching your inner and outer environment, looking for, am I safe? Am I Mm -hmm. safe? And um, if it gets the sense, whether it's real or not, that you're not safe, it'll create what most of us have heard before the stress response, the fight, flight, freeze. Um, and, and in that we'll be able to respond, we'll either be able to fight back or run away or kind of pretend play dead so that whatever that threat is, will go away. So that's, that's the broad strokes. And then in the 1970s, this guy named Stephen Porges discovered that there's actually kind of a, another aspect to that autonomic nervous system. And so instead of just responding by mobilizing, which would be that fight or flight, or immobilizing, which would be freeze, we have a third function in that autonomic nervous system, and it's called social engagement. And social engagement is the state that we're in when we, when our autonomic nervous system is scanning our environment, and it says, we're cool, we're safe, everything's okay right now. I'm sitting here talking to a person who has a friendly face, I don't feel any threats, we can we can be open, we can be curious together, we can be communicative, we can be collaborative, like all those things that make us truly uniquely human and capable of growth and deep connection only happen in the place where we are in social engagement. So, so that's when like you a, ask is that like a parasympathetic state kind of a thing? It actually, it is. So the sympathetic is when we mobilize. Right. Parasympathetic has two states. One is that immobilize and one is social engagement. Great question. You know, when you talk about being dysregulated, a dysregulated nervous system is one that's responding to some real or perceived threat. So it's either mobilizing or it's immobilizing. And that's not bad. Right. Like, We want to be able to have that. That's something that's unconsciously happening all the time. And, you know, if, if a bear were to suddenly come through your front door and be in your house, you want your nervous system to quote unquote dysregulate to be able to run away. You don't um, want to sit there and say, you know what? That's a reflection of the bear and not of me. And just sit there being all exactly. Zen out. No, totally. <laughs> or you don't want to be like, oh, what kind of bear is that? I wonder where its home is. Like you're just yeah. no, you don't want to be in that higher level thinking. Mm-hmm. You want to be in gut level reaction. Totally. And so dysregulation isn't bad. What becomes a challenge is when we can't come out of that. Yes. Or when it's something that we're kind of what it's called is like your window of tolerance is small. So you feel threatened by little things and they take you out of that social engagement, even though there really isn't danger happening there. Right, right. Because I know when you're in a mobilized state, you were talking about how, you know, you just come off like a jerk sometimes, right? Like you're just, and I, I've, I was listening to this in the gym and I was thinking to myself, the smallest thing pisses me off. Like, 
the bands, the exercise bands, when I was listening to your podcast, the exercise band like got really, really skinny and tight on me. And it was hurting me more than the exercise. And I was like, you know, beep, 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 yeah. like, cuss, 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 cuss. And I was like, so annoyed. I was like, here I am. My back hurts. I'm trying to work out. And this band won't stop rolling down. And you just get like, for no reason, just like this asshole mode. Totally. I know when I, um, pre pandemic, I used to go into organizations a lot and work with groups of people. And, and I would talk about these different states, the mobilize, immobilize and social engagement. And I would ask people like show of hands, when you're in that mobilized place, how many of you think the people you work with are annoying, slow, stupid, and in your way. And like everybody raised their hand. And I said, see, yeah, this isn't a function of your personalities. This is how you see the world mm -hmm. when you're in that state. Mm -hmm. Every, I mean, if you think about it, you're in fight mode. Yeah. Right. So you're, you're, everything's a competition and everything is out to get you. And we're going to get to this later, guys, but we're going to talk about some techniques to use um, if you're in that mobilize or immobilized state. We're going to use we're going to use those later. Um, but uh, it, it's just ironic to me that one of my techniques for mobilization is to go to the gym. And mm -hmm. then that band thing happened. And I was like, you know what? <laughs> right. So Calm your storm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I wanted to also address the fact that you and I have so many similarities. It's insane. You talked about, you know, you had a loving family, great family dynamic. You know, you grew up, it was wonderful. You went to college, you got an education, you got married fairly young, right? Right out of college. Yes. And then you were like, so, you know, this guy's great. This guy's handsome. You know, this it's, it's perfect. You've and got then, the great life. Totally. Yeah. Like we're set now, right? No, it falls apart. We get a divorce within my, in my case, one year, your case two. Two. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and I'm like, is there something wrong with me? Because every, everyone else's marriage is still intact. And from the outside, it looks great. You know, of course, there's a whole other thing with social media, which I will not get into right now. Right. But you're Thank God I didn't have well, that at that point in my life. <laughs> for real. Me too, though. Me too. I mean, yeah. I think I think Facebook had literally just come out when I was mm. in college. So there was no like posting, a, you know, Facebook status. Me and my husband are getting divorced. Like there was right. nothing yeah. <laughs> like that yeah. at the time. But I just remember thinking, is there something wrong with me? Is it my astrological sign? Is it because mm -hmm. I'm a Pisces? Um, is it my attachment style? Is mm -hmm. it, you know, generational trauma because my mm -hmm. grandmother had really bad anxiety? You know, mm -hmm. all those mm -hmm. questions. I couldn't believe when we, when you shared your story and I was like, oh my gosh, we definitely exactly. have a very similar story. And for me, yeah, when I got out of that marriage and was like, you know, looking at the shambles of my life, I was like, how did I get here? Because I'm smart. And I care about people and I had good intentions and I thought yes. they had good values. And, you know, I, it took me a long time to, to figure out all the pieces. And, um, and I would say that, um, you know, because I had the good childhood where there was nothing, you know, like my parents didn't beat me. Nobody was an alcoholic. We were, we had a roof over our head. 
I didn't see the places that were essentially emotional attunement that I wasn't getting that. And it's, it's so tricky because I, I have clients all the time where like, ah, oh, I don't want to blame it on my family of origin. It's like, well, your parents can be wonderful people. And still there could have been pieces lacking that when you look at the paradigm you got for love and relating, it's missing some pieces. And when those pieces are missing and you also are dealing with your own flavor of anxiety, you can create relationships that don't work mm. really easily. And so when I said a little bit ago that when I work with clients one-on-one, -on -one, essentially I become their mom for a year. Yeah. Part of why that is, is because I would say the thing that all of my clients have in common is that they had developmental trauma. And developmental trauma is different than what we think of in terms of like capital T trauma, right? Capital T trauma is usually like a big event, right. um, that sort of thing. <laughs> developmental trauma is, is often talked about as too little over too long a period of time. Hmm. So my twenties, my twenties. Yeah, yeah. 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 And if you, you know, grow up in a household or community in which people don't show emotions and people, you know, well, buck up. That's just how life goes. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, there's not a lot of emotional resonance happening. And that happens for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. You, as a child, get a message, my insides don't matter. Because, I mean, if you think back to being like six, seven years old, and, and you, for example, you know, don't get invited to your best friend's birthday party, that's devastating. Oh, yeah. In that moment in your entire being, you're devastated. And if you don't have a grown person going, that makes sense to me. Of course, you're devastated. That's so sad. I'm so sorry, honey. You know, if you don't have someone responding in that way, you start to get the message of like, well, crap, like on my insides, this is a big deal. And this person who says they love me more than anyone in the world isn't showing that they seem to think it's a big deal. So A, my feelings must be weird or off. And B, my insides must not matter that much. Mm -hmm. And then and then you go off from there and you start creating relationships, whether they're romantic relationships or friend relationships or professional relationships. And if you don't think your insides matter, you do all kinds of wacky stuff. <laughs> Well, I definitely pushed, I pushed my parents uh, a little bit because they, so they're both immigrants. So I'm first generation American. And because of that, most of the time you'll find that immigrant families tend to stay very close together mm -hmm. and like be more free mm -hmm. with one another. Like walking around naked with my mom and sister is not a big deal to me. If mm -hmm. you said that in an American household, they'd be like, huh, what? You are so, you still would show your mom your naked body. I'm like, that's my mom. Like I came yeah. out of her. Um, <laughs> but there, but we were super, super close. And I felt that I could go to her with anything. And it was almost like, it was almost a trauma response in some way there where I felt compulsive in telling her every single thing mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. not necessarily seek approval, but to seek understanding of me. Like I wanted her to yeah. understand me better. And yeah. I find that our relationship has 
grown by leaps and bounds since that time. And, and she really has been my soft place to land. And my dad has been super supportive too, and my sister. But for me, and I don't know if anyone out there can resonate, it was really in my 20s when I started getting into romantic relationships, like in, I guess, like late, late teens, early 20s. And that's when I felt, as you were saying, I wasn't getting that reassurance mm -hmm. that my thoughts mattered. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think that's why I cling so heavily to what my parents think, because I, I know that they truly love me like unconditionally. So if they're mm -hmm. mad at me, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm like, please talk to me, please talk to me. Like I, you know, I'm just mm -hmm. like that crazy ex-girlfriend with my parents sometimes. <laughs> does that make sense? It does make sense. And I think, you know, that's the piece where a, a large part of this emotional regulation work that I do with folks, one part of it is being able to regulate your nervous system, because if your nervous system is going haywire, you can't actually access the parts of your brain that can help you see things rationally, you know, be the grown up in the room sort of thing. But the other piece of it is really looking at like, how to soothe our, our own emotions and how to parent ourselves. And what I find with people is that Oftentimes they didn't complete the normal developmental cycle of differentiating, mm -hmm. um, or in, sometimes it's called individuating or differentiating. It's like what we do in our teens where we're supposed to become separate from our family and how, you know, really kind of stand on our own and know that if we show signs of having a different um, view of something, we're still going to be loved and accepted. And so we kind of do the thing where we just stay close and, and, and like be like our family still so that we don't get not left out, but like, there's that real sense of this is where home and safety is. And mm -hmm. if I'm, if I'm somehow separate from that, I'm not going to be okay. Right. And being able to really find that sense of, soothing and parenting in yourself where it's like, okay, so even if my mom is upset with me, I'm still going to be okay. Mm -hmm. You know, even Absolutely. if my dad sees things really differently than me, it's not going to threaten my very being. <laughs> yeah. You know? Cause that's it what it feels like. feels like. Yeah. It feels like it. And I'll, I'll expose myself like, fuck it. I'll just say it. You know, when I wanted to get a divorce, uh, my mommy drove me to the attorney's office and mm -hmm. she paid for my retainer and she drove me to court, you know, like I was still a child. I mean, yeah. I, I was 23 or four and my mom was driving me to get a divorce, yeah. you know? So you're, you're right on the nose with what you're saying. I kind of just connect myself to my family. I've done a great job in the past. I would say three, four years of doing all of this self-improvement work, you know? Mm -hmm. So thank, thank goodness I can mm -hmm. now self-soothe much better. And I don't need to necessarily always reach out for my mom or my dad, um, as my mm -hmm. security blanket, which is a vast improvement. Yeah. <laughs> but I think the thing that really threw me for a loop. And I think that what, um, a lot of went a lot of my peers and, and also, you know, my, my audience skews a little younger. So, you know, my twenties mm -hmm. really was where I had the worst time. And I, yeah. I felt like nobody could understand me because I was de dealing with these modern, um, 
modern dating problems like cheating, um, the gaslighting, the lying, the love bombing, um, you know, things like that, where I felt like if a man cheated on me or if he was ignoring me and he was my boyfriend or whatever, I was like, I felt like I wanted to peel my skin off because I was so anxious and so hyper and and just like having panic attacks and mm. i had absolutely no sense of self-worth first of all right. no sense of how to self-soothe um i took everything personally so mm. everything i was in my ego a thousand percent um mm. so if you were giving advice to someone going off to college right who's probably gonna maybe meet her first big romantic partner um deal with uh being away from the home deal with scholastic you know uh, things all on their own instead of having to ask their mom and dad things like that where you might get in trouble you might experiment with drugs what, whatever it might be what are like maybe three to five things to know in your early 20s um, with regards to self-regulation and your emotions. Oh my gosh. So in terms of self-regulation and really the foundation of self-worth, you have to have a sense of yourself from your neck down. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, you mentioned scholastic achievement and all of that. Like, I think so many people who are at that college age but they're in a unique place because they're at a time in their life where up until then, every major decision was made by someone else for them. And at that point in their life, they know that they get approval through doing well in school or doing well in sports or mm -hmm. so there's like this real sense of all the external validation and all the external, um, decision-making for them. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're 18, 19, and you're making all the decisions for your life that are big. Yeah. And there's not necessarily someone there right there saying like, oh, you're good because you got this grade or, oh, you're bad because you got this grade. So all of that, what I'm, what I'm trying to get at Stephanie is that what's <laughs> important is that you start to develop a sense of what I call embodied self-awareness. So embodied self-awareness is different than conceptual self-awareness. Conceptual self-awareness is all the talk that goes on in our head. Ooh. It's you know how we make sense of ourselves. It's the stories we tell ourselves. It's how we analyze situations. And most of us are very good at that. Mm -hmm. um, embodied self-awareness is things like, am I hot or am I cool right now? Can I feel where my clothing is touching my skin? Okay. Am I aware of where the light is coming in in the room that I'm in? Like yeah. it's actual experience in the moment. Is, can, you know, can I feel the parts of my chair that are supporting me? Can I feel the weight of my body leaning into what's I can me? see your yoga practice coming in right now. Right? You see how this, so that's exactly it. what I started to learn in, in researching neuroscience and what's actually happening in our body is that when you're present in your body in a non-judgmental, just like, hey, I'm aware that my hands are a little cold and my feet are a little cold, you you start to have access to things that you don't have access to when you're just in your head. And what research shows is embodied self-awareness in, increases our ability to regulate our emotions, mm -hmm. to feel attuned to others. We feel more brave, more courageous because you have resources. Mm -hmm. um, gosh, what else? Like just basically all the things that make you feel like a good human being happen right. when you're present in your body, not when you're present in your head. 
also not because you're smart. You know, being smart is different than having embodied self-awareness. Totally. One of the major things I would say to someone going off into college or into the world for the first time is start to develop just little practices where you check in with your body throughout the day. And it can be as little as, can I feel my feet on the ground right now? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, you talked about, we were going to talk about some of these things orienting yourself just look around the room that you're in for no reason other than to see what the colors are and notice where the light's coming in and you know just kind of orient yourself in space well because sometimes i'm so sorry go ahead no go ahead i was just gonna say you know some some there's been times even recently i will say that i've been so in my head that hours and hours and hours will go by And then I will be like, it's nighttime, you know? And I didn't even notice that the sun set because I was so in my head. And so I've been taking your advice and looking at my fingernails, putting on the lotion, you know, on my hands. Again, we're going to talk about some coping mechanisms um, soon, techniques. Um, But, you know, I've been taking that advice about not only being in my head and just like from the neck down, you know, feeling my, you know, my body against the couch and drinking some cool ice water and things like that. And what do you notice when you do that? I just noticed that first of all, my thoughts slow. Mm -hmm. So instead of speeding through like, what if this happens? What if that, this happens? Oh my God, are they going to die if they do this? Am I going to die if I do this? Like just, you know, all the stuff that goes on sometimes. Yeah is this going to be a fail? Like I'm launching a new business. I'm like, is this going to fail? Am I going to make money? Am I going to be destitute? Am I going to live underneath the, the, you know, the bypass, the freeway, like, you know, all these crazy right. things. Yeah. And I just kind of come back into myself and, you know, I just like, I'm, I, it gives me a breather, a breather just to remind myself that, Hey, in this moment right now, you're not living underneath a freeway. You're in a beautiful exactly. house. You're, exactly. you get the opportunity to start a new business. Like it just kind of brings you back to, to earth reality. reality. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. cause that's, that is a big, uh, distinguisher between embodied self-awareness and con- conceptual self-awareness. Yeah. Let me first say one, neither one of them is better than the other. They're just mm-hmm. different, right. but conceptual self-awareness mm-hmm. is in the past or the future. Mm-hmm. and embodied self-awareness is right here right now exactly it's in the present and i and need so to work on that <laughs> yeah most people do and and what it does is it gives you a layer of experience that is grounded in reality that can it doesn't necessarily take away the anxiety but it adds a layer of like oh and that's my butt in my chair Right. It's like, okay, so there's something solid happening. I'm in a body. I'm in a room right now where I'm actually safe. So even though I'm thinking about, am I going to be destitute on the street in 10 months from now, right now, there's a layer of me that's totally supported and I'm breathing and I'm, you know, I just had lunch. I'm cool. I'm okay. And that makes a difference to your brain. Your brain reads, oh, even though there's some thoughts happening about what might happen in the future. And there's fear and anxiety. Your brain also goes, Oh, but there's other, this other part of me that's really aware of being supported. So nothing, there isn't really a threat happening. So your nervous system can stay regulated and you're more likely to be able to enter into the, that moment resourced and by resourced, meaning feeling like 
you you have what it takes. There's this great um, definition of anxiety versus resilience that I I love. And anxiety is, I think I know what's going to happen. And it's the worst thing, right? I think I know what's going to happen. And it's the worst thing that could possibly happen. And I don't think I'm going to have what it takes to handle it. And resilience is, I don't know what's going to happen. Because nobody does. But I know I'll have what it takes to handle it. I really like that. That's... Can you feel the difference, like physically, viscerally? Yes. yes. And the thing that I say when I share that with people is that all evidence suggests that you are resilient because you are still sitting here today doing something that you love, mm-hmm. being curious, being in social engagement, which means that every hardship you've had up until now, you had exactly what you needed to get through it happening for me not to me exactly kind of where I live (laughs) and I also live in the either I evolve or I repeat that's my other mantra that is true (laughs) yes yeah Yeah. (laughs) what were you gonna say I'm so sorry no so I was just gonna say you know for those young younger people out there who are entering into the world like start to trust that your body is a resource. It isn't just this thing that carries your head around. Right. And um, the other piece of that that you mentioned was, you know, like they're going into the dating world and all that stuff. And like, I have this saying in my, my group program, yours truly, where I talk about making sure that you're not accepting crumbs, but that you look for the full meal. Breadcrumbing is like my number one thing that drives me absolutely insane. I can't stand it. And people get that. Again, like I'm such a somatic or body-oriented visceral person. I like things that you can feel in your body. Like Mm -hmm. you people know what it feels like when they're in a relationship where it's accepting crumbs. I was actually just talking to a client yesterday. She's in her 60s and just going through divorce. And she was like, yeah, I was with my soon-to-be ex-husband. They're going through the divorce. And she was like, I was with him the other day and I was just feeling like, is this crumbs? Is this crummy? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what did you feel? She's like, yeah, it was crummy. And I said, well, what does it feel like when it's crummy? She goes, I turn myself inside out. And I was like, yeah, that's the feeling. Oh, interesting. I, and I said, what does it feel like when you know you're getting the whole meal? And she said, I feel solid and present and true peaceful is what I think of right peaceful there's not a lot of like extra you know Anna and I almost went down the wrong rabbit hole because she and I tend to talk each other into emotionally bypassing things um we get to be a little bypassy where we're like no this is just my abandonment wound I they're not doing anything wrong. I, it's me. I need to work on it. And we tend to do that. She and I, yeah, we, we enable each other. Sometimes we do it. We're like, I think this is your abandonment wound, but really it's breadcrumbing and really it's gaslighting and really it literally is lying or cheating or not on her end, but for stuff that, you know, she and I talk about with my relationship, she's married and I'm not, and I'm just Mm -hmm. dating. Mm -hmm. Um, I had this ex that was literally breadcrumbing he would not pick up the phone for hours and of course she and I were like oh no he's just really busy you know he's he's really working so hard like this is just us being abandonment woundy you know she kind of was in it with me 
But we talked about it this past week after she's been going through all the family systems and stuff like that. And we're just like, no, fuck that. Like, we're not going to accept that. We should go with our gut instinct and say to ourselves, like, that is not what I deserve. I don't have to sit here and analyze a man's patterns and what he's doing. I shouldn't have to do that. I should just feel peaceful and whole and not having to turn my insides out. Yeah. Well, and I, I think that's a great example of the conceptual versus embodied self-awareness, right? Like mm-hmm. you and Anna, and I'm the same way, have the tendency to go towards conceptualizing, yeah. making sense of it. What's How does this fit in the story? Right. Because if you can do that, there's a sense of control, right? Mm-hmm. But if you were to go from the embodied self-awareness of what it felt like to be on the receiving end of that, there's a, there's like, I'm assuming it was super clear. It didn't feel good. Super right? clear. And if you know how to stay present with feelings in your body, instead of going straight up to your head and trying to make sense of them, so you don't have to feel you get the, the benefit of that intelligence and you can act upon it. You know, when I'm working with people who are just starting to date someone new, I say, you know, don't go into the first date asking, like, is this the person I want to marry? Go into the first date tracking your body mm-hmm. and seeing, did I like how I felt when I was with this person? On the notes. And mm-hmm. did I like it enough that I want to see this person one more time? And that is all you have to ask yourself for months. I feel like when you're in your 20s, you go into a date and you ask yourself, is he going to like me? That is. What yeah. I used oh, to I just got the chills on my, yeah, it's that ink. is so much of the people that I work with. And they have this sense of like, if the other, the other piece that comes through is the sense, if you go on the first date and you feel the other person likes you and you don't like them, you have an obligation to go on a second totally. date because it'd be a jerky thing to not. Totally. And it's like, oh no, sweetie, like this is, this is your life and this yeah. is your insights. And you get to say to someone, thank you so much for spending this time with me. I don't feel a connection. I wish you the best yeah. because going back to that developmental trauma with not a lot of emotional resonance, all of that, typically the thing that those people also have in common is that they feel like they're, it's their job to make sure other people are comfortable and and feel good about themselves. And so I know in my family, like the unspoken rule was you don't get to make anyone uncomfortable. I like that. And so like when I would go on a date and if the guy liked me and I didn't like him, I'd feel like, oh shit, like I can't say no to him because that's going to make him uncomfortable. And then I would, you know, find myself six months into dating somebody that I was kind of like, meh. Mm-hmm. All of that kind of comes back around to if you think your insides matter, you can have self-worth and dignity. Yes. You know? But I I have this other very, very good friend who, you know, she's happily married. And then she had this one guy that that was her first love. And so sometimes she still thinks about him and she does, she never reaches out to him, but once a year, this man will reach out to her and he'll say, I wish it would have been you on my wedding day. I wish it was you and things like that. And so for the past 10 years, that's been happening over and over. So all of a sudden she's had this epiphany of like, I don't, she, you know, 
we, we both had a mutual friend that got cheated on recently. I've been cheated on recently. And so we both, you know, we both are kind of in this space of like, we don't talk to any married men, no matter if they're going through a hard time with their wife, if they're just separated, whatever, like she and I just said, if a married man wants to talk to me, like too bad, you know, um, in mm-hmm. any capacity. And I don't just mean romantically, like just mm-hmm. even small talk, it should only be of a professional matter, you know, and cause mm-hmm. we don't want to get into that sort of space. So she was going to block him. The whole point of the story, she was going to block him and she is, <laughs> I love her for this. Cause she's so kind, but she showed me the text where she like, or it was a Facebook message maybe. And she like explained to him why she was blocking him. And I was like, babe, you don't need to explain why you're blocking. Like you just block and don't say anything Mm. else. Like there's Mm. no need to explain to anybody. Like nobody gets to make you feel uncomfortable. Like you said, so yeah, like sure. It, it helped her ego out once a year, but was it really doing anything for her? No. And it definitely is disrespectful. It was manipulative. Super manipulative. And so she, what I said to her was, I was like, unsend that message because what it looks like is you want his attention, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) because you're saying I'm blocking you. I hope you understand. And then blocking and then of course he the reaction of a man like that usually not always is to chase because Mm. oh you cut off contact with me well now i'm going to email you or whatever it is right so so i think she unsent it and blocked him but i was like you don't need to explain to anybody i tell my friends this all the time i was like if you need to set a boundary you don't need to explain that boundary to them you can just block them and be done with it that's true. And I think there's also, you know, there's, I, I find in the people that I work with that when you're not used to setting boundaries, there's kind of an equal and opposite reaction, which is, I call it dropping bombs on Luxembourg, (laughs) (laughs) where you go from like being super, super pacifist and I'm never going to make anyone uncomfortable. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So all of a sudden you're like, you know, the, the villagers are like, why are you bombing us? We're peaceful. Um, and so I think one of the things that I, I do, right. I can't stop laughing. Sorry. There's so many people. I wrote an article about that years ago and I get so many people write to me about like, oh my God, that's me. That's um, me. <laughs> yeah. And so I think that the piece, one of the things I work with people on in my group and individual coaching is like, if you're used to having no boundaries or you're used to having that kind of one down sort of position when you're in a relationship, you don't actually have the right language to show up and be an equal and be caring to another person while caring to yourself. It's like growing up in France and and not ever learning Japanese, because (laughs) why would you know Japanese if you lived in France? So it's, you know, when we talk about learning to have self-worth and be differentiated and be able to manage your own emotions with that comes a whole different kind of language where you can just speak cleanly to someone in a way that isn't charged in a way that isn't, you know, manipulative or putting hooks in them. Um, but in a way that's also really loving and kind. And that's a huge part of what I do with people is like, okay, now that now that you're working on your own mental paradigms and rewriting what it means to 
to love and be in relationship? What does it actually look like? How do you do that? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just wish that I had a quarter of the knowledge that I have now, not only about emotionally self-regulating, but about the fact that, you know, if someone cheats on me, that has no bearing on me. It's like says everything about them, you know, and people have a very hard time understanding this, you know, about, um, you know, uh, I'll give you an example about me. Um, Recently, I was uh, dating this guy and um, he was long distance for a little while, but at home base was here and he was acting just flighty, breadcrumby, all that stuff. And I knew it, but I was blaming myself and my wounding. And I was really just, you know, I put it all out there. I was like, how can I make your day better today? Just really doing all the work. And while he's texting, like I'm breaking up with him and I'm like, cause he won't answer a phone call, <laughs> whatever. That's another thing. <laughs> so, um, so I break up with him over text. He's texting me. Don't leave me. I love you. Simultaneously. I am receiving another message from a girl that says, stop texting my boyfriend, you're embarrassing yourself. Like he's literally having an affair, has a whole new girlfriend, but is talking to me saying, I love you, don't leave. And I mean, that's a whole nother ball game for him. But for me personally, that I still got that anxiety reaction. Now, of course, I didn't take it personally. And I didn't say, oh, she's prettier, or she's better than me, nothing like that. But Mm -hmm there was that like really petty part of me where I saw like this girl had a kid and she had like some very sexually charged photos next to a photo of her toddler on her profile grid. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to screenshot this and I'm going to send it to her baby's dad. Like just like that evil little click that happens. And I, I didn't do it, but like, it was still there, that little dragon inside. Well, you know, you said it exactly. You said there was a part of me who, and then described it. And yeah. that would, that's exactly what I would say that when I work with people, we work with understanding what are these different parts. Right. And it's kind of like what Anna has been working with, with internal family systems and being curious about that, that my work really draws upon internal family systems with, you know, we all have wounded parts of us. Mm -hmm. And then we all have strategic parts of us that have come on board to protect those wounded parts in ways that we learned were effective, even if they're maladaptive in the sense of like what we actually want for ourselves in our adult years. And so my experience is that all those different parts, the wounded part and the strategic parts, they have a embodied feeling to them like when you went into i'm gonna screenshot this and send it to her like that has a feeling yeah and it is not peace it's rage right yeah that's a rage (laughs) and and so like again being able when you can one identify sensations in your body then you can two understand what am i feeling what part of me is having this feeling and how do i then bring myself back to the part of me that has the dignity and the calm. And it isn't because you're denying those other parts. You know, that's the bypass. Mm-hmm. Um, it's be, it's because you're acknowledging they're there and integrating. So the work that I do with people is really about integration. Um, and this idea that if we all have these different parts, because we do, 
I imagine it as like you're in a car driving down the highway and um, you've got the little kid, the wounded child, and you've got these strategic parts and you can't pull over on the side of the road and just kick them out. Right. And like drive off. They're going to be with you for the rest of your life, but you don't want the little kid driving the car Mm. and you don't even want this, like anyone else in that car picking what you're listening to. You know, you don't want to pick them. You want to be the one driving and you want to be the one picking what you're listening to. And you want the wounded child to be in the backseat with some crackers and a blankie. (laughs) And you want the strategic self to be like in this passenger seat, not giving you any ideas about where to go. And there's this sense of like, once you know what these different parts are and how to care for them, you get to stay in the driver's seat. Yeah. And I want people to know that it's okay to feel those emotions and it's okay oh, to, yeah. to vent to your friends about, you know, what your fantasy is like a manure truck dumping on his head. Like, sure, you can, you're allowed to fantasize all those things. But, you know, the fact is that like only you, as we know, are in control of your actions and, and your emotions. Like you can definitely, people can influence your emotions, but only yeah. you can self-regulate. And, um, and that's why it's so hard when someone is hurting or in pain to it's, it's hard, but besides like distracting them, it's really hard to actually ease their pain because they have to do that work. It is, it is. Yeah. And I think that's one of the pieces that I see when people try to self-soothe or when we try to soothe someone else, often we'll say something like, Oh, it'll be okay. And that's like the worst thing to say to somebody. I hate that. Right? That sucks. Oh my God. Right. Right. Like (sighs) actual empathy is showing one, it makes sense to me that you feel this way. I understand that you like, you're not crazy for feeling that way. You're not crazy for wanting a dump truck of shit to come on, (laughs) like pour onto his head. That makes sense to me. And then to also be able to say like, I understand how hard this must be like really to be in that. And then instead of it's all going to be okay. The thing that I like is no matter what happens, I'll be here for you. I love that. You know, it's like the, the kind of negative or not negative, the kind of hard example I always give is like, if someone you love was diagnosed with terminal cancer, you can't say to them, that sucks. It's going to be okay. God. Or that sucks. But if you say to them, no matter what happens, I'll be here. I'm going to be right here. That feels good. That's why when, you know, when someone passes away, I don't ever say, oh, I'm sorry for your loss. I'm praying for you. I don't ever say that because I feel like everybody says that, but they don't really mean it. It's just something you say out of politeness. So instead of of not knowing what to say. Right. Totally. It's uncomfortable. So you can say... I have no idea what to say to you. There's no words that can make that better. What I do is I always try to tell them that I am actively asking for their peace of heart and their mind Mm. because, because I know that if I can try to remind them to be at peace in their heart and mind, perhaps that will help. And that's, that's really the only thing that I can say. Right. Right. What I was going to say about like being able to know what the words are to say to someone else is also so important in terms of what we say to ourselves. because so much of the time, what we say to ourselves is it's going to be okay. Yes, I know. (laughs) Or that sucks or 
as opposed to actual self-empathy is saying to yourself, like, it makes sense to me that I feel this way. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not crazy for feeling that way. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to be here for me no matter what. So to go back one more time to your question about what advice to give to people, <laughs> the other thing I would Looping say is back like, 20 minutes later, because <laughs> it, well, it's, it's just so it's all kind of it's part of the same thing, which is I, a long time ago, I developed this, I'm going to call it practice because it was something I practiced, but it was super simple. It was throughout the day, just saying to myself, are you there? And when I said, are you there? Who I was a t- who I was addressing was like that part of me that I know has dignity that I know has calm and peace and confidence. Cause you know, we all have certain um, venues in which we've seen that in ourselves. Like I was talking with a client the other day, who's a massage therapist. And she's like, when I'm giving a massage, I am confident. I'm calm. I am focused. I am present. She's like, I don't have it when I'm around my partner or my you know, whatever. But she's like, when I'm doing that, I have that. And I said, well, then ask that. When you're saying, are you there? You're looking for that part of you. So Mm -hmm. find the one thing that you do that, you know, whenever I'm doing this, I just feel like me, I feel at peace. I feel connected to something bigger. I feel like everything's going to be okay, no matter what. And then ask that part of you every once in a while, like, Hey, are you there? Because yeah. my experience is, as soon as I ask, I feel, I feel like the little hint of. I feel my heart just give to be when you said it. Right. <clears throat> yeah, so because I don't think that. I've ever asked myself that question. But that's a, such a beautiful question. I can't explain why it's beautiful. It just is so loving. It's, it's yeah. Weird. It's just so sweet. Mm-hmm. And I think that's you know the important piece to recognize. Like I talk a lot about relationships with people, but ultimately, and we all know this, like your main relationship is the one with you mm-hmm. and, you know, just learning how to be sweet to yourself, Ooh, learning it's hard. how to be loving, learning how to be empathic. We are all so hard on ourselves. All of us are, you know, I, I mean, I'm so hard on myself and I always have to remind myself would my best friend say this to me right no she would never and why would she be my best friend if she if she didn't think I was worth being her best friend right you know so I think that that that's so important for for the women in their 20s and men too um but mostly women I think that women have a, a lot more issues um you know mentally I think males are just you know, there's just so, so much more physical, like they can go and hit a punching bag or, you know, at the gym for an hour and they're like, I'm good. And like, maybe they're suppressing stuff. I, I can't speak to that. But for me, you know, it takes me a while to process. So even after that whole episode happened with my ex, it took me a couple of months to, mm. I would say two months, like not, not to, I wasn't sad about losing the dude. I was already over him. You know, I, it was over, but to get out of my ego to say, cause it triggered my injustice a little bit because I was, mm-hmm. I was like, how dare this person after I did all of these things do this to me. And he's so cruel and she's such a bitch and all mm-hmm. this stuff. So it took me a while to get out of that 
thought pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know when I was younger and I was going through my divorce and then my subsequent uh, very serious relationship, that destroyed me for like six months. You know, it mm-hmm. took uh, almost a year probably to be back to, I don't know what you would call it, baseline. I, I don't know what my baseline was, but it was, mm-hmm. it really threw me for a loop and I would just go psycho. Like I remember I, um, my college friends always joke about this because it's like a, it's literally a running joke in the fraternity that my ex-husband was in. But um, I lightly tapped his garage door with my car. Um, gently, a, gen- a gentle tap. Um, <laughs> So like whenever his fraternity brothers, whenever I see them, they're like, so have you run into any more garage doors lately? You know, like I just would snap and that's not me. Like that's, that's not really who I am, you know? And, and then my, you know, some guys will be like, oh, maybe that's locked in there somewhere. And they, it's almost like men like that crazy side sometimes. Like they, I don't, it's, they Mm. like, they like it, but they won't admit it, but they're just like, Ooh, that's sexy. Like that you were feisty like that. I'm like, it's not sexy. That was a not sexy moment. That was like an ugly monster moment where my boyfriend wouldn't pick up the phone for me Mm. at the time, my boyfriend. And I literally tapped, I didn't like ram it. Okay. It was a gentle tap, but I still ran my car into his garage door. Right. Right. And (laughs) you know, that's, it's totally understandable. That's the kind of thing we do when we are in pain and don't know how to be with that experience, right? Like I imagine those, those moments, especially when I was younger and there was a sense of betrayal or a sense of being left or abandoned. And it's just like, your insides just feel raw and like, it's like the worst, most uncomfortable place in the world to be. So you just want to be outside of yourself and either control something or hurt something or change something. And that's that piece of the embodied self-awareness is like, if you can stay with my, you know, my stomach just is turning and churning Um, my hands are hot. I want to punch something and I can feel my feet on the ground and I can see the grass waving in the wind outside my window, like those kind of anchor points that there's layers to the experience. Cause when we get flooded with emotion, it feels like you're drowning and it feels like it's the only thing that's happening. So in those moments where you're so flooded with emotion that you want to tap a A garage garage door with a car it's like (laughs) finding finding an anchor point of like okay that the that is true it's also true that I can um that I can feel my hands when I'm squeezing my fists and letting them go like just Mm -hmm. something that anchors you in that rage or that feeling of betrayal isn't a hundred percent of your who you are so let's get into the the coping techniques. Let's yeah. get into the what you call the ABCs. Oh right. Um, we can talk about that and and then I can share a few of mine. Maybe you can share a few of yours, your mobilized versus immobilized okay. um, techniques because I know that and just to explain to everybody, you know, there's some days where I'm super stressed out and I'm literally like working 10 hours, then I'm going to the gym, then I'm recording a podcast and I'm still super productive, Mm -hmm. but I'm in this fight or flight the whole time. And then there's 
days where I am feeling depressed, I'm crying. I sit on that couch back there for hours upon hours, staring at my phone mindlessly scrolling. And I just can't snap out of it. Even if my parents are like, let's go to dinner. Let my friends are like, let me come over. And I just shut down. So let's, Mm -hmm. let's talk Mm -hmm. about how we cope. Right. So the ABCs that you mentioned are three different, um, they're called felt resources. They're things that help bring you back to embodied self-awareness because we know from research that embodied self-awareness helps your brain come back to a place where it's better able to manage emotions and attune to others and all that piece. So A stands for awareness and it's really an orienting practice. It's look around the room, especially if you're looking at a phone or looking at a computer or a TV, it's take your eyes off of it, scan your head around the room. And even like making sure you're turning your head so your neck moves because some of the ner- the vagus nerve that is, has to do with social engagement is partly in your neck. So mm-hmm. moving your head, yes. Um, you know, looking for three objects that are blue helps to kind of bring you out of that constant thinking. Yep. So that's A. B stands for body, which is anything that reminds you that you exist from the neck down. So gentle stretch, um, tapping, you know, like hitting your chest, putting a lotion on your hands, that sort of thing. Really simple stuff. We're not talking about like, exactly. We don't, it doesn't have to be like yoga or, you know, a big workout is anything that reminds you that you have a body and lets you help feel it, you know? It could be as much as, uh, or as tiny as wiggling your toes in your shoes. You know, if you're on a zoom call for work or you're in a meeting, just like you can wiggle your toes and nobody knows you're doing that. But if you know, you're doing that and there's a part of your brain that's saying I'm wiggling my toes, that's you turning on embodied self-awareness and it will help. So that's B. And then C is centering. And classic centering is anything where you kind of sit taller, broaden your collarbones, and get a sense of having a longer, right? You just immediately take a deep breath. Yes. Ah, um, But I like to add a piece to centering, and that is um, centering with care. So first you sit up taller, broaden your shoulder, or broaden your shoulders, uh, open up your chest. And then you can put your hand to your chest or to your belly or one to both and bring to mind someone or something or some place that genuinely makes you smile. And you know, you find it when you get that little smile on your face. I just did. (laughs) Right. And the idea is that when you bring to mind that person, it makes you smile or that place or thing um, to see if you can feel the smile in your body. So it isn't just a thing that happens at your lips. It's like, what, you know, do you feel warmth? Do you feel um, your shoulders relaxed? Do you feel a sense of softening? Whatever it is, because that then becomes a resource for you. Mm -hmm. I was working actually with a man um, last year who had, he would get really um, full of rage when his kids would be upset about something like he liked control in the house and he was like I hate that when my little girls freak out I just want to like you know hulk out essentially and so we did the thing where I had him center with care and he came up with a uh, place in mind that in nature that he loved and he opened his eyes and he looked at me he goes oh my god I felt that and I was like 
good. Oh. That means it's a resource. And so the idea isn't with that one, that if it's a place that you imagine that you're there, you know, it's not about removing yourself from the situation. Right. It's about what do I feel like when I'm there? Because that feeling is mine. Oh, I get that. It's a resource for me and I can bring it here. You know, it's like the same way you can feel sunshine on your arm. If you imagine it, even if it's raining outside, like, you know what that feels like, you can bring it in. Um, so that centering with care is about using your mind to say, I know there is a feeling in which I feel loved and cared for and part of something bigger. I'm going to bring that here so that I can better attend to what's in front of me. I know this isn't a scientific question, but have you noticed any pattern at all with astrological science and how people deal with things? You know what? I haven't because I don't normally ask people yeah. mm -hmm. what their astrological sign is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because, okay, so I'm a Pisces and I feel like everything I do is so stereotypically Pisces. And sometimes I uh -huh. feel like we put that on ourselves because we're like, oh, that's so Pisces or, oh, that's so Virgo or whatever it might be. And, and, and so we dictate a lot of the times like, you know, oh, I'm so sensitive. I cry at everything. And therefore you're sensitive and cry at everything. Cause you've just said that about yourself because the universe listens. Right. But I, I truly do feel like what you were talking about, where you put your hand on your heart and you go to that place and you feel that emotion. I feel like there's some of my girlfriends who wouldn't be able to understand that kind of nostalgia to do that, to, they would be like, they would feel awkward doing that. For sure. And I think that's, that's the thing with these, um, when I call them felt resources is that not all of them will work for everyone. Right. Find right. the one that does, right. you know, for many people, it's like, look, the awareness piece of just like looking around the room, that's really helpful because they're more active Mm -hmm. Um, someone who's more emotionally centered, you're right, would, would probably really respond to that centering with care. Someone who's maybe more physically oriented responds to the body piece of like, oh yeah, all I have to do is sit up taller and stretch my arms. And so what I find is that most of them will work in a small part for most people, but there's usually one that's like, that really works for me. And for me, I know it changes depending on the situation. Like if yes. I'm doing something work-related and <laughs> I'm wanting to feel more confident, I do grounding. Like I, I want to feel my feet on the ground and I want to feel my legs strong. Yeah. But if I'm in a, like a, a more personal situation, I have a difficult conversation to have. I'm more likely to use that like centering with care so I can soften a little bit and not come into it. I'm a, I'm a Taurus. So I come into things bullheaded and like, I have a Taurus moon. So I yeah. Relate. Yeah. So I like to, when I'm in a more personal situation, do something that I know will help soften my body because I can come across as, as hard. Mm-hmm. I also know that Taurus are probably the least likely to believe that astrological stuff is connected. Oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's funny. No, I'm totally into it. I, I, I know. Well, my, my one of my I best friends a, is a Taurus too. So I, I have a cancer moon or cancer rising. So there's my, so there's my emotional water. water. 
Yeah, mm-hmm, for, for sure. sure. But mm-hmm. uh, what was it that you were saying? Oh, my, so my two things that I have since added to my list are um, body brushing. I love, oh, yeah. that. it's great for you. Yes. Uh, the, the health benefits are wonderful. And then the other thing is if I'm in the middle of, I guess more, I think it's going to be more of a mobilized, well, it could be, honestly be either, but the, I used this when I was in a mobilized state to chill the fuck out is I took a big bowl of ice water and I dunked my whole face in it. Oh, yeah, yeah. And That's that's part of the uh the diving reflex that we have like you don't have to you don't have to dunk your face and it doesn't have to be cold uh or ice water you can splash water on your face okay because um that's part of maybe i should try that first yeah you could you can make it a little more pleasant if you want i have Um, to be dramatic at all times jay okay yeah go big um but yeah splashing water on your face is one gargling water drinking something, you know, drinking water, all these things that wake up your throat, because that's where your your vagus nerve and the the part of your vagus nerve that has to do with social engagement is in Mm -hmm. your face, throat and upper chest. So, you know, stimulating that area, moving your head around to stretch your neck, tapping on your upper chest, stretching your face, you know, just like doesn't look cute, but it no. fe- it feels good and like ah, yeah. And when and we're driving, right? We can do things when we're driving. Absolutely. Yeah, wiggle our toes. But so much of it, as you're as you're saying it, is like so much of it is about you have a body, mm-hmm. like be engaged with it. And that's you're right. That's where the yoga teacher part of me comes in. Yes. It's like if you can be present in your body, you, you have access to a whole different kind of intelligence that you don't if you're just in your head thinking all the time totally yeah I do uh this is maybe it's TMI but like when I'm when I'm doing podcasts a lot of times like I'll do kegels mm-hmm. because it kind of keeps me um in my body a little bit and grounded a little bit so I I can operate better um that absolutely way, so. <laughs> I mean I, I'm totally the same way I'm always doing something where I'm reminding myself I have a body because if not I like vaporize it's that feeling of like, I just become this head yes. and, happening here. and because of my, my like quote unquote training and my background as, as a people pleaser and all that, oh, if I'm not in my body, I'm just going to like immediately become a chameleon mm-hmm. and do whatever you need me to do and be how you want me to be. And like, be reading your face for what's okay. You know, I have to remember these, these little pieces about having a body. Cause that's how I stay in the room. Yeah. You know, and let's remind people, Jay, that like, this is a process. This is not something you will be an expert at overnight. It's just about right. you can, you know, implement even one little thing from what Jay is teaching us for a month, say, or a couple of weeks, and yeah. then you can implement another, you know, and your thought process will eventually begin to change and understand and adapt. Yes. You can think of it as practice, but I also like to think of it as you're growing a relationship with yourself. Mm-hmm. And it's a felt sense. It's not you're thinking about yourself. It's like you're learning to feel your own presence. And so with that, it's like creating some quote unquote touch points or hangout time with yourself where you actually feel this is me having an experience. And one of the things I like to tell people in terms of how do you start doing these practices is uh, layer them. 
So if there's something you already do every day, like you're, you're a coffee fanatic and you have to have your coffee in the morning, do centering with care while your coffee is brewing. Okay. You know, or yeah. Or while you're brushing your teeth, intentionally look around the room and taking colors and like feel yourself breathing like you, you know, or every time you get up to go pee during the day, also take a moment to stretch or put lotion on your hands and smell the lotion. And like, right. You automatically that deep breath you take is a sign that your parasympathetic nervous system is kicking in going, Oh, we can chill. Yes. Um, so it's those little, you know, I, I love this kind of work, the embodied self-awareness work, because it isn't like meditation where you have to sit for 20 minutes and be still and close your eyes. It's like so bad five, <laughs> five seconds of intentionally looking out the window or intentionally feeling where your chair is supporting your body is enough to like bring you back. Yes. And you just keep doing that little bits throughout the day. And eventually, like you said, you find yourself more present. And that's not to say don't go to yoga. I definitely go. But if you don't have time to go to yoga, this is a great way to center yourself. And if you don't have the attention span, like yours well truly. Right, exactly. <laughs> I, can't, I mean, I just, I, I would love to love yoga, but I just can't. I, I'm not present. My mind's always elsewhere. It just it's like for me, same thing happened with reading physical books. I used to absolutely adore reading physical books, and now my brain will wander so I can only listen to audiobooks. Yeah. And I'm sure, again, I'm sure there's a trauma response in there somewhere. However, that's what works for me and it keeps me calm, and I'll fall asleep to podcasts or audiobooks mm. and stuff. And that has worked so well for me with regulating mm. my nervous system. Yeah. Meet yourself where you're at. That's, yes. that's how that works. So we already, I, I always ask at the end of a pod, at the end of each podcast, I ask the same question, but I'm going to, I'm going to ask a different question to you Ooh. because we've already talked about if you met your 20 year old self, what advice mm. would you give to her? Because we've worked, so we've already <laughs> gone over that with you. So what I want to ask you is, do you regret getting married at a young age, because I get asked that question a lot. And I want to know your response. Wow, that's a big question. Do I regret it? If I could go back and do it differently, I don't think I would have gotten married. And I think it was for as smart as I thought it was, I, I didn't understand what I was doing. Yeah. You didn't understand what marriage was, what love was, what, I mean, I feel like you don't. Yeah. I was too, I was too young for me. I was, it was, I didn't, I didn't know who I was yet. I didn't have a strong enough sense of self. Do you feel though that it shapes you though in any way? I mean, do you feel? Well, that's why it's like, I, I, that's why I can't say that I can regret it because it, that experience was so formative for me. And it's the reason I do what I do. Right. Um, it was, you know, the greatest pain moment in my life totally. up until that point. And mm-hmm. I think, um, so if I didn't get married, I would have been a different person entirely. Mm-hmm. Me too. I, I regret how it went down. Me too. You know, I think it's the thing of one of the things that I look back on and I say with my clients all the time is like, if, if you could have done better at that time, you would have. Mm-hmm. 
But with the knowledge you had at that time, you did the best you could. Absolutely. And I full, fully believe that I, I don't vilify myself anymore. Like I did the best that I could with what I had at that time. It was rough. <laughs> it, was, it was really rough. I know. I'm sure you and I will talk more about that when we're yeah. you know, one-on-one um, chatting right. or something, but I, I cannot thank you enough for this enlightening conversation. It, it's helped me already. And I can't imagine how much it's going to help my friends and, and, you know, my, my peers and my followers, because truly it's, it's very difficult to navigate today's world with social media constantly and your face and telling you all this advice and it's so much advice and you don't know where to cherry pick from. And that's why I have this podcast because I want the experts to come and just make a beeline directly for the podcast because you know that that's accurate information and not some person talking about gaslighting again, where you're just like, I don't want to talk about narcissism anymore. I'm, I'm over it, you know? Um, so thank you, Jay, for your time. Oh my Um, gosh. Thank you for your, um, being (laughs) so personal and open and asking such great questions. I, I think that kind of conversation is what really helps people and helps people trust that their own experience is real and matters. And validates you, you know, it's it's validating to know you're not the only one as well. Maybe you haven't run your car into your ex-boyfriend's garage, but uh, maybe you've done something else. We've all done something like that. (laughs) Um, So how can we support you, Jay? Where can we, what's your website? Where can we find you? How can people sign up? My website is my name, J-A-Y-Fields, F-I-E-L-D-S.com and on there, you can sign up for my newsletter. Like I, I send out an article a week where I talk about this kind of stuff or give examples of what's happening with clients and that sort of thing. You can read more about my group coaching program, yours truly. And there's links from my website to my LinkedIn learning courses that you mentioned, the managing emotions at work and regulating your nervous system for stress management. So right. I will be linking, there. yes, I'll be linking everything, but just in case cool. people don't read, cause that happens. Yes. Um, <laughs> we like to say it on the podcast too, but again, thank you for your time. And I, I hope we get to stay friends. Cause I really feel such a great connection with you. I know a lot of synchronicity. <laughs> thank you, Stephanie, so much. Thank you Have a wonderful evening and I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Sounds okay. good. Bye-bye. <laughs> That's a wrap for this episode of the luxury dropout. Make sure to visit stephaniejoplin.com to find all of Steph's episodes, including full podcast descriptions and photos of her guests. Until next time, besties.